Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 34. It's titled, Investing Rules of Thumb. Let me start with a question. When a baseball hits a bat, what determines where the ball will go? How high, how far, and how fast? There's a quote by George Manning, and he's the former vice president of technical services with Hilleridge and Bradsby. Hilleridge and Bradsby used to be a client of my old firm, and they manufacture the Louisville Slugger baseball bat. And this was an interview, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to the interview, where they asked him this, this very question. What determines where the baseball goes when it hits a Louisville Slugger bat? Here's what Manning said. Quote, the speed of the bat, the speed of the ball, the mass of the ball, the location of the hit of the ball and the bat, the angle of the hit, the weather the conditions, the coefficient of restitution between the bat and the ball, the ball's surface condition, the direction of the bat at the impact, the direction of the ball at the impact, and the spin on the ball. Now, that, that coefficient of restitution, no idea what that means. Although I did look up a, a court case where they referred to it, and apparently a there was a family sued Hillerich and Bradsby because their son got hit in the face with a baseball coming off a Louisville Slugger bat. I believe it was an aluminum bat. And the jury awarded them $900,000, but it was overturned in appeal because the fact that the bat itself was not defective. And, and I guess you can't necessarily sue if the particular product is actually performing its function, which in this case is to hit the ball. But as part of that case, they talked about this technical measure of coefficient of restitution. So given all those factors, how do fielders go about catching a flying baseball? I used to play baseball as a kid, I was not very good. I believe I hit my peak at age seven, maybe eight, and went downhill from there and generally played right field where they put young baseball players that don't catch balls very well. And so when the ball would hit high in the air, all those factors, does the brain act like a computer quickly weighing the factors and do it does some type of curvilinear regression that determines which direction to run. It doesn't. The fielders use a simple rule of thumb. They fix their eyes on the ball and then adjust their running speed so the angle of their gaze remains constant. 
So the ball's hit, you run, I'd run when I was a kid. And and the idea, and this is all subconscious. So this is this is all nobody's really thinking about this, but we just naturally when we're gonna chase a ball, we keep the angle between our eyes and the ball, we keep that angle of that gaze constant and then adjust our speed. That's ha- that is the same process dogs use when they're catching a frisbee. It's how fish that are swimming, I guess fish always swim, catch their prey. They keep that angle of the gaze constant. So this is in in all types of nature. Now this this is what Gerd Gigerenzer calls a heuristic. He calls it the gaze heuristic. And and Gerd, I referred to him at the end, I believe it was episode 15, and I actually gave this baseball example. Well, I recently f- finished his latest book called Risk Savvy, How to Make Good Decisions. It came out earlier this year, and he talked about these rules of thumb. And what a rule of thumb is, or the scientific term is a heuristic, H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C, there's simple rules that our brain use to make quick decisions as we seek to navigate a complex world. So there's simple rules of thumb. Now, the opposite of a heuristic would be a manual calculation in the sense that we, we gather as much information as possible. We determine which of all that, of that data we should weigh most heavily We try to understand the dependency and the relationships between that data. And ultimately, we make a decision by trying to optimize it. And and generally speaking, there's this idea that, well, the more information you have, the better you you can make better decisions. And a mechanical calculation is superior to using simple rules of thumb. So... Clearly, when chasing a baseball or when confronted by a bear, there's insufficient time to make all these calculations. But if there is sufficient time, wouldn't that be the best way to make the choice or to make a decision? Well, it turns out, no, not necessarily. The times when, and and Gigerenzer talks about it in this book, and also a research paper that I'll link to in the show notes, the times when rules of thumb are superior, and by superior, I mean more accurate than manual calculation, is when uncertainty is high. And we talked a lot in in recent episodes about uncertainty. So why is that? Well, because uncertainty is... Well, what does that mean? Uncertainty is when the outcome is unknown, but also the many inputs that determine that outcome is unknown, and the hidden linkages between those inputs are also unknown. And and so what what essentially I'm describing is complexity, right? A complex adaptive system that I've talked about in, in earlier episodes. We don't know what will happen what the outcome would be, and we don't even know what the inputs are that will actually lead to that outcome. So when uncertainty is high, then surprises are likely. 
And in that environment, rules of thumb are better because they do a superior job of adapting to surprises, whereas using complex calculations actually doesn't handle surprise very well. And why is that? Well, because those are very much tied to the past. I remember being, when I was in graduate school, I took a class on linear regression, and we used, I think it was a software program called SAS. I don't know if they still use that or not. I was fascinated by the fact that you could somehow take different weights, different inputs. The, the statistical software would figure out, all right, what is the best fit for this line or which formula to predict based on those inputs? And you know, we would did all kinds of different examples during that semester. Well, that's great, but there's a, there's a problem with that particularly when a lot of the inputs are unknown. What do you put in for the inputs? And so if you don't have many inputs, and yet you're still trying to do these manual calculations, let's say run a regression analysis, it tends to fit the formula that it comes up with fits the past data. It relies on the past, but that isn't necessarily a great predictor of the future. Now think back in the last few episodes, where is there something that is completely uncertain, yet there are models used that try to predict what's going to happen within that realm of uncertainty? Modern portfolio theory, which we've talked about in terms of there you have a statistical model that's based on expected return, it's based on expected risk as measured by volatility, and it's based on the linkages, the correlations, and they put them those all together and spit out an optimal portfolio. That's a classic example of using a manual calculation. Now, Harry Markowitz won the Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking work on determining optimal asset allocation, sort of the, the founder of modern portfolio theory. In 2011, there was an interview of Markowitz that was published in Science News. And they asked him, Harry, how do you allocate your retirement accounts? He had an account at TIAA-CREF, which is essentially, it was like a, I guess, not a 401k, but a, a 403b plan. So you had different options. And so I said, asked Markowitz, how do you go about it? Here's Markowitz's quote. I thought, you know, if the stock market goes way up and I'm not in, I'll feel stupid. And if it goes way down and I'm in it, I'll feel stupid. So I went 50-50. Markowitz divided up his portfolio evenly among the options. He didn't use modern portfolio theory. Now, his rationale was very much irrational in the sense that, right? I mean, the father of rational modern portfolio theory is using an irrational decision rule. 
I feel stupid if I do it the way the optimization model says I should. I found this all the time with clients where we would actually structure or constrain the optimization model so it would create outputs or answers that they were willing to accept so that they didn't feel stupid or they felt comfortable with the level of risk. So you would say, well, just because Markowitz didn't feel comfortable doing it doesn't mean that modern portfolio theory is not a preferred and more superior, more accurate way to determine an asset allocation. Well, here's a study from 2007, an academic paper. It's titled Optimal Versus Naive Diversification. How inefficient is the one divided by N investment strategy? And it's by Victor Di, Di Miguel, Lorenzo Garlapi, and Raman Upal, all three whose names I probably mispronounce. Now, a one divided by N investment strategy or portfolio strategy is essentially doing what Markowitz does. Look at all the options, divide your money equally between all the options or all the buckets. Well, they went about studying, all right, what is the best method for allocating among different assets? And they, they looked at 14 different methodologies, and they applied those methodologies to seven different data sets. And then what they found were none of the methodologies was consistently better than dividing up the assets equally. Think about it. Just a, a naive, I'm going to split it up which isn't that much different than the permanent portfolio that I mentioned in, might have been episode 22 or 23, where it's divide it up equally between gold, real estate, stocks. No, I take that back. It was stocks, bonds, cash, and gold. And I'm not recommending that, but that's an example of dividing it up evenly. And there's actually some data that supports doing that. Now, simple rules of thumb are not necessarily the best in every situation. At some point, there is enough data that actually using a manual calculation or some type of regression analysis is more accurate than a simple rule of thumb. Now, the authors of this paper actually also address that issue they determine, all right, how much data would you need to historical data to actually have optimization strategies, allocation strategies that were superior to just dividing it equally between each of the buckets? They found out you, if you had 25 assets, you needed 3,000 months worth of data in order to be more accurate than dividing it up evenly. 3,000 months is 250 years. If you were dividing among 50 assets, you would need 500 years or 6,000 months worth of data in order to get a model that was more accurate than the rule of thumb of 1 divided by n, or dividing up everything evenly. So that's a simple rule of thumb that's actually superior and that's not necessarily intuitive but that's what 
well, <laughs> when I say not intuitive, it's actually is intuitive for many individuals as they look at their 401k options. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So what I want to do is focus on other investing rules of thumb that I use. The first is very much in line with this one divided by N or dividing up everything equally. It's to divide your portfolio into as many buckets as possible. If you look at in episode 2021, when I talked about investing without a map and saw my portfolio allocation, it was divided up in, in many different buckets. But you know, as I've reflected since doing that episode and, and reflected on a, a situation that I currently have with one of my assets— I probably am not diversified enough. And you go back to just a couple episodes ago on are you sure you're diversified? You want to look at at drivers. What are the drivers of return? But I have an asset that's probably is is my largest asset. And I bought it about three and a half years ago. And it's the farm that I've alluded to. It's a farm with 80 acres. It 
overlooks the Teton mountain range. What attracted us about this area was the utter solitude and silence. The closest neighbor is a half mile away, beautiful view of the mountain, and we very much enjoyed having friends and family come visit us. This is a second home. We redid the house. We debated tearing down the house. But we said, no, let's go ahead and redo it because it's a very a, a, well, a solid house. And so we sunk a fair amount of money into this house. So here's an asset. doesn't necessarily yield very much, but it was, it was sort of buying this, what I thought was the bottom of the real estate market and was very, very close to the bottom. But it is a, a fairly large percent of my total net worth. About a month ago, a month and a half ago, I came up to the farm to record an episode of the show. And I was surprised as I was pulling in. We're about three miles from the highway on a dirt road. And and we're the first house on this road. So three miles in. And and I see a dump truck coming toward me. I thought, well, that's kind of weird. You know, I don't hardly ever see any traffic on this road. And I get a little farther and I saw another dump truck. And I pulled into my driveway, and I, th- I thought, what in the world is going on? Well, it turns out there was a gravel pit that had been abandoned for I don't know how many years. At least I, It had never been used since I had owned, we had owned this farm. It had started up again. There was a big boom. They were churning gravel, and literally there was a dump truck going up the road Every five minutes, as I record this today, I, you know, I sit at my desk and I look out the window and I can see dump trucks and I can hear them. And it's a little frustrating because that's an example of a negative surprise, something I didn't anticipate. I remember when we bought this place looking and saying, yeah, there's an old gravel pit, but it didn't, it didn't even cross my mind that they might start it up again. I've met with the county. I'm continuing to, to research. I used to, I was on planning and zoning for many years. So, I mean, I'll figure it out. But ultimately, it's probably going to cost me some money. We're actually selling it partly because of that, but partly because our lifestyle or, the, or the, what we want to do in the next decade it does not really involve owning a second home. We want to get rid of as many assets as possible so we can travel more. But that's an example of a negative surprise. And so the rule of thumb to divide your portfolio into many buckets as possible, the reason for doing that is to not be concentrated in any one asset type that can give you a negative surprise, such as we're seeing (laughs) with our farm, or the corollary, uh, you know, a positive surprise also. And, And so that's a rule of thumb in that that academic study supports that. Another rule of thumb is, is an adjustment to this because if you take your 401k or your retirement, your, your discretionary, your defined contribution plan and divide up evenly, that's not necessarily the best choice in the sense that those were not random asset classes. Most defined contribution plan have more equity options, more stock options stock choices and then do bond choices. And so if you actually divide it up evenly, you potentially could have too much in stocks. So the second rule of thumb, and we've talked about this in an earlier episode, is focus on your ability to recover from extreme events 
and not average expected outcomes. So the focus and is extreme. Your ability to recover from large market sell-offs. Don't focus on what is considered an average expected outcome, particularly if it comes from an asset allocation model, because we don't we shouldn't make decisions based on the average. We should make it based on extreme events and our ability to recover. We've talked about that in earlier episodes. Here's a, th- a third rule of thumb that I follow. Wait until something has hit an extreme price or valuation and then reverses. In other words, when something is falling and it seems cheap, don't buy. Wait until it's actually hit bottom and started moving the other way. Sometimes it's moved along a while. This is an investment rule that, I, that I've learned over the years, and it's taken me a while to grasp because when something's fallen, there's just psychologically, I just want to, I want to, I want to buy. And, and oil is a great example. Oil is down 40% in four months. By any measure, it's, it's oversold, and it's very, very tempting to take some exposure. In fact, I almost found myself buying futures on oil the other day. And I stopped myself and said, that, that's, I'm not obeying my own rule of thumb. It hasn't hit an extreme in reverse. It could continue to fall. On the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, actually yesterday, I, I put an audio lesson where I talked about the ramifications of this significant drop in oil and what it could have in terms of the impact on stocks and the impact on other commodities. And it, it's not a prediction. It's based on other a, a long historical period when oil has dropped like it has. And so that's on moneyfortherestofus.hub. You can check that out there. But that's the, that's the simple rule of thumb. Wait until something hits an extreme and then reverses. A final rule of thumb that I, I use, it, it, I made up, it's follow the traffic night lights. And, and, and what do I mean by that? Well, when you look at how managers invest, and, and I spent years researching managers, visiting them, and there are so many different ways that stock managers or hedge funds can go about choosing investments. And, and there was a book written a number of years ago by Mohammed Alarian, who used to be with PIMCO. And I think it's, it was called When Markets Collide. And he has a chapter in there where he talks about the signal and the noise. And, and what he meant was, is, and this gets back to simple rules of thumb and why complicated algorithms and calculations often aren't as accurate as simple rules of thumb, it's because there's often a lot of noise. And so these complicated models can pick up noise that doesn't really determine what's going on. Instead, we should focus on the signal. And and I've spent many, many years trying to understand, well, what, what signals should I look at? And those are the traffic lights that I follow. The one signal I look at is valuation. I have found that when I buy assets that are cheap and have hit an extreme and then reversed that that, by and large, 
more often than not are successful investments. So that's traffic signal number one. I look if it's red, yellow, or green. I also look at the level of fear and greed in the market and and also determine, all right, what is that signal saying? Because that's the psychological aspect of how individuals, markets are made up of individuals. So if you look at our investors very, very fearful, which is often a, an attractive time to buy after the fear starts to subside. In other words, it's hit an extreme and then reverse. Or are they they overzealous? And, and so that's a, that's a traffic signal that I look at. And then I look at economic trends. I want to understand what season we are in terms of the economy, in terms of not because I'm trying to predict it, but is the economy growing or is it slowing? Because ultimately that can impact economic or can impact corporate earnings, which can impact stock prices. So those are the three traffic signals that I look at. And when all three market valuations, investor sentiment, economic and central bank trends are green, then I'll take on more risk and have more stock exposure. When they're, when they're red, I'll be much more conservative. And oftentimes, they're different colors, and then it's a judgment. One of the things I do on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub is I do a formal update on, on those signals. What are current market conditions to, to help members kind of understand, all right, here's what I'm doing based on that, and, and here's where we are in the current environment. Now, is that the only way to invest? Are there other simple rules of thumb? Absolutely. And, and one of the things that we need to do is everyone needs to kind of develop what rules they're most comfortable with. Perhaps you just want to divide your assets evenly, and, and that's it, and not make any adjustments. Other than don't put too much in stocks if you get to be in your 50s, you know, at least focus on the extreme events. But if you want to diversify and, and not make any adjustments, that is a perfectly viable way to invest. And because how I invest, I make mistakes. I mean, I just told you a mistake I made. I, I have too much assets in a farm with dump trucks going up the road every few minutes. That's a problem. Another mistake, you could call a mistake, or it's a lost opportunity. I didn't have... REIT exposure, real estate investment trust exposure in 2014. REITs are up over 20% this year. I didn't because they, I, they, in my mind, they weren't attractively valued enough. Yet, that would have been an example. Had I diversified more and had more asset types, I could have benefited from that. And I would have been like Harry Markowitz because now I feel stupid that I didn't have any real estate investment trust in my portfolio. I had municipal bonds earlier this year, and I sold them too early. I should have held on to them. I sold them because they tend to be longer in duration or sensitivity to interest rates. And I was like many. I didn't know what rates were going to do, but I didn't want to, to be exposed to rising interest rates. Rates fell. They would have done better. I should have held on longer. So we all make mistakes. What we're trying to do is follow simple rules of thumb to minimize the mistakes as much as possible. So that's episode 34, Investment Rules of Thumb. If you go to moneyfortherestofus.net, 
There you'll find show notes. I'll link to the academic papers that are referred to here. I'll link to the, the books that are referred to. You can also, if you go to, to that website, moneyfortherestofus.net, you can sign up for my insider's guide. I will email you those show notes. I'm also emailing out the spreadsheet I referred to, the Mind the Gap spreadsheet I referred to last week. That I'll continue to email that out for the next couple of weeks. Go ahead and, and check out, if you would, the moneyfortherestofushub.com. That's the membership site where you can dig deeper into these topics. You can look at the, some of the audio and video lessons that, that I share there and also the review of market conditions. So that's at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in today's episode is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply education on money, investing, and the economy. Next week, episode 35, I hope the week is good for you. Thanks. Thanks.